Daniel chapter 1, starting at verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. A few days ago, I was standing in the church office when my friend Anna came in holding this game called Herd Mentality. The aim of the game is to answer a series of questions, not in the way that you would personally answer them, but in the way that you think everyone else would. So to give an example, if the question were, what's the best flavor of crisps? You wouldn't answer with your own personal favorite, ready salted in my case. 
but with the answer that you think most other players would choose. I'm guessing from the reaction there that ready-salted probably wouldn't be the best choice in this case. It struck me as Anna was speaking that most people live their entire lives as if they're playing this game. It says on the back of the box, think like the herd, which is a good summary of the game. And also of many people's approach to life in general. Just be normal. Go with the flow. Don't swim against the tide. Whatever you do, don't stand out. Daniel is a book about standing out. It begins where the story of Israel ends with the exile to Babylon. Verse 1. In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Daniel and his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, had grown up as the very cream of Jewish society. We're told in verse 3 that they came from the royal family and the nobility. They were politically elite. In verse 4, that they were youths without blemish of good appearance. They were physically impressive. That they were skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning. They were intellectually able. And that they were competent to stand in the king's palace. They were socially poised. They had it all. Looks, status, brains, gravitas. At the very essence of privilege. And as part of their elite upbringing, they would surely have been schooled in the scripture and story of Israel and her God. But then disaster struck. In 605 BC, Babylon besieged Jerusalem and they were carted off into exile to be trained in a different culture. One with different values and different gods. They were indoctrinated in an idolatrous worldview. Verse 3, then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel and, end of verse 4, to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. No more stories of Yahweh and his great saving power before bed. No, now it's idol designed for dummies and basics of fortune telling that are dominating the reading list. They were enticed with idolatrous food. Verse 5, the king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. You can imagine the temptation, can't you? Oh, we know that your old God gave you special rules about what you could and couldn't eat. But, well, here's an extra large bacon double cheeseburger. Uh, And did we mention that all of the meat comes pre-sacrificed to Babylon and her gods? Even their names get a Babylonian makeover. Instead of names that recall the God of Israel and his great deeds, they're given names that praise and honor the gods of Babylon, Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. Every part of their lives is recalibrated to make them forget the God of Israel and get on with making the most of life in Babylon And the same is true for us today. In verse 2, Daniel refers to Babylon as the land of Shinar. If you know your Bible well, you'll know that Shinar was the location of the Tower of Babel, that great monument to human pride and arrogance. 
in defiance of God. It's a a postcode synonymous with the world in rebellion against God. And it's where we all live. Like Daniel, we feel that persistent pull of a godless culture every single day of our lives. From our families and friends, from our colleagues and neighbours, from what we hear on the radio, to what we watch on TV, to what we see on the internet, from what we're taught in school, to what we read in the newspaper, to what we're sold in advertising. Every part of our culture, of the world around us, designed to make us forget the God of the Bible and get on with living with this world. Whatever makes you happy, just be yourself. You do you. Love wins. How do you resist the temptation to think like the herd? In a world determined to make you blend in, how do you stand out? What does faithfulness to God look like in the land of Shinar? Well, the book of Daniel was written to help us, and it begins by reminding us of our God. Three times in the passage, Daniel repeats the same two words. I wonder if you noticed them. They're there in verse 2, and again in verse 9, and again in verse 17. Verse 2, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. Verse 9. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. Verse 17, as for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. Three times Daniel reminds us, God gave. He is still on his throne. He has not lost control. Three times Daniel reminds us, even in Babel's domain, the Lord reigns. Well, we're going to spend the rest of our time looking at those three verses. And as we do, we're going to see three different angles on the Lord's sovereign rule. First, in verse two, the Lord reigns in defeat. Second, in verse nine, the Lord reigns to defend. And third, in verse 17, the Lord reigns to direct. So first, the Lord reigns in defeat. And we said that Daniel's story begins where Israel's ends. Uh, but the exile to Babylon wasn't just the end of Israel's story. It also looked like the end for Israel's God. Uh, his city had been besieged. His king had been conquered. And the articles from his temple were now sitting like museum pieces in the temples of Babylon and her gods. In verse 2, we're told that Nebuchadnezzar brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God, the cups and bowls that the Lord God had given for his praise and worship in Jerusalem, now sitting in the trophy cabinet of Marduk and Bel, the gods of Babylon. You can imagine the headlines, Babylon victorious, Yahweh defeated. To every opinion writer in the ancient Near East, it looked like the end for Israel's God, but not to Daniel. Have a look down at verse 1 again. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, 
Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Instead of seeing through the eyes of the world, Daniel sees through the eyes of Scripture. He remembers that over a century before, God had told King Hezekiah that his descendants would be carried off to exile in Babylon. For decades, Jeremiah, the prophet, had been warning the people that if they didn't repent, God would bring this disaster on their heads. And now he had. Far from a defeat, the exile was a vindication of his sovereign will, the fulfillment of God's promise to judge Israel for her sins. And it shows us something amazing about our God, that even in apparent defeat, when it looks like he's lost control, he hasn't. He reigns. A few years ago, my family went on holiday to Rome. During our stay, we went to visit the the catacombs, these tombs of early Christians who gave their lives because of their faith. On some of the tombs were written the dates of the person who lied within, the dates of their life from when they were born to when they died. And then after the dates, three Latin words, regnante, Jesu Christu, in the reign of Jesus Christ. See, they knew. Even in this apparent defeat, as their lives were taken because of their trust in God, they knew the Lord reigns. He is still on his throne. One of the reasons I find it hard to resist the world's pull is that God's cause doesn't feel very victorious. Every day, more churches close, congregations dwindle. The average church in the Church of England now has 25 people in it. And on average, one of them is under 18. Surely such a God has been defeated. Condemned to the dustbin of history by the unstoppable march of modernity. And then I remember this passage. And it reminds me that God is just as sovereign over his people's judgment as he is over their salvation. The church's decline in the West is no proof that he has lost control, only that he is faithful. And that he judges his people when they embrace sin and false teaching, as so much of the church in the West has. It may feel like defeat, but the truth is God reigns, even in those apparent moments. And of course, he doesn't just reign over his people's judgment, but also in their defense, which brings us to our second point, the Lord reigns to defend. In verse 8, Daniel makes the courageous decision not to defile himself with the king's food. And the book of Daniel in an alternative universe could end right there. You can imagine verse 9, couldn't you? It could easily have read, and the chief eunuch reported Daniel to the king, and the king ordered him to to chop off Daniel's head, to put him to death for his disobedience. But it doesn't, because God is on the throne. Verse 8, but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor 
and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. In 1 Kings 8 verse 50, at the dedication of the temple in Jerusalem, King Solomon had prayed that God would have mercy on his people when their sin got them taken into exile by giving them compassion in the sight of their captors. And now, 400 years later, God faithfully answers his prayer. God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. Interestingly, that doesn't lead the chief eunuch to actually grant Daniel's request. Verse 10, and the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king, who aside your food and your drink, for why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who were of your own age? So you'd endanger my head with the king. But Daniel, undeterred, simply works his way down the chain of command, like the child who gets a no from mummy, so goes to daddy and gets a yes instead. And the steward grants his request, verse 11. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter. And tested them for 10 days. God's sovereign protection enables Daniel first to make his request to the chief of the eunuchs without punishment. And then when that doesn't work, to go to the steward and get what he wanted anyway. And then most clearly of all, to reject the king's food. And yet to have no visible difference. In fact, to be fatter and healthier than all of those that ate the food that came from the king's table. Verse 15. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. I know that the vegan diet is a little more trendy than it was in Daniel's day, but make no mistake, these verses describe a miracle. The king's servants eat every meal from an all-you-can-eat buffet cooked up by the king's personal sous chef. And yet Daniel and his friends managed to grow healthier and fatter on vegetables and water alone. And because they do, their faithfulness to God never lands them in hot water with the king. How do you explain that? Unless God is on his throne, protecting those who remain faithful to him. On Thursdays, I help lead one of our associate training groups. Well, we were joined this week by an old friend who now works as a maths teacher in Shanghai. She told me that she runs a small CU within her school. And I asked her how the school leadership felt about this. She said, oh, they're okay with it. As long as we don't do anything in public, they're happy to turn a blind eye. That's lucky, I thought. Then I remembered this passage. It's not luck. It's God's sovereign protection of his faithful people. Last week, I was chatting to someone about their work at the 6 p.m. They told me that last year, during February, their entire office were told that they would have to wear a rainbow badge to mark LGBT History Month. 
I asked them what they did. They said they quietly ignored it. I asked what happened. They said nothing. That's lucky, I thought. Then I remembered this passage. It's not luck. It's God's sovereign protection of his people. A number of us have just been away on the Romans weekend away, listening to Carl Porter, who works in the insurance industry, talk about his work sharing the gospel with people in that sector. And he told us story after story of, of times that he'd shared the gospel with quite senior business people, uh, at things that could have got him fired uh, if he had not been protected by the Lord. And as he told these stories, I thought time and time again, That's lucky. That didn't lead to anything serious, Carl. Then I remembered this passage. It's not luck. It's God sovereignly protecting his people when they take the bold decision to stand out for him. If we live for Jesus in this world, we will stand out. Where do you get the courage to do so? By remembering that God reigns to defend. Of course, that doesn't mean that God's people will never suffer for their faith. Think of Joseph in Genesis 39, uh, who refused the advances of Potiphar's wife and ended up in prison for a crime that he never committed. But it does mean we can trust God to work all things together for our good and for his glory. Think of the words that Joseph spoke at the end of that story in Genesis 50. You intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. The Lord always protects his people, and his protection always has a purpose. Which brings us to our third point. The Lord reigns to direct. The passage began with King Nebuchadnezzar commanding Ashpenaz to educate Daniel and his friends in the literature and language of the Chaldeans. But now in verse 17, we find out where their wisdom truly came from. Verse 17, as for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. As the other exiles from Judah immersed themselves into Babylonian culture, Daniel and his friends sought wisdom from another source, the God of the Bible, the only truly wise God. And because their wisdom came from him, they became 10 times wiser than the very best that Babylon had to offer. Verse 18, at the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, The chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them. And among all of them was found none like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in his kingdom." By giving such wisdom to Daniel, the Lord puts him exactly where he wants him to be. Like a chess grandmaster arranging the pieces on the board, he puts Daniel at the beating heart of Nebuchadnezzar's court at the very height of its power, ready to use him over the next 11 chapters of this book to reveal his agenda for the end of history 
to reveal his sovereign power over kings and nations. And that agenda that he is going to reveal throughout Daniel is one that will far outlast Babylon and its gods. I wonder if you notice the short comment with which Daniel ends this opening scene. It's there in verse 21. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. It looks like a a pretty innocent little remark, doesn't it? It's actually a deeply subversive thing to say. Because Cyrus was no Babylonian. He was a Persian king. The Persian king, in fact, who conquered Babylon. And brought all that Nebuchadnezzar worked for, crashing down to the dust. It's as if the narrator is saying, long after Babylon's downfall, Daniel, God's man, will still be here because Daniel's God will still be on the throne. Even in Babel's domain, the Lord reigns. In October 1974, George Foreman took on Muhammad Ali in the Rumble in the Jungle, the greatest boxing match of all time. Everyone expected Foreman to win easily. For round after round, he pummeled Ali without mercy. And then at the end of the sixth round, Ali leant in to Foreman's ear and whispered, Is that all you got, George? By the end of the eighth round, Foreman was on the floor. And Ali went down as the greatest of all time. You know, it might look at times as if the kingdoms of the world have the God of the Bible on the ropes, taking a beating from them. But he can soak up the pressure for as long as he needs. When they have done their worst, he will still be there, ready to bring them crashing down to the earth. He reigns, even in Babylon, even here. So whose corner would you rather be in? Whose side would you rather be on? Daniel certainly knew, didn't he? Verse 8 again. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food, or with the wine that he drank. There's a wonderful pun in verses 7 and 8 here that our translation slightly obscures. In verse 7, it literally says, the chief of the eunuchs set names upon Daniel and his friends, but, verse 8, Daniel set his heart not to defile himself with the king's food. When the chief eunuch set an idolatrous name on Daniel... Daniel set his heart on serving the Lord. While they were set on putting Babylon into Daniel, Daniel was set on serving the only true and living God in Babylon. Even in Babel's domain, the Lord reigns. And Daniel knew that. And that's why he did what he did. Will we do the same? When we feel enticed by the world and its ways, will we do the same? When we feel the pressure to conform with the culture around us, will we do the same? 
when we feel the temptation to think like the herd, will we do the same? If you're anything like me, the answer is probably sometimes yes, sometimes no. Actually, a lot of the time, I think I'm a bit more like the other exiles in verse 3 who just keep their heads down and accept the king's food. Because I'm not perfect. And no, no one here is perfect. None of us will get this right all the time. But wonderfully, God has met our failure in the Lord Jesus. He is the true Daniel. The one who became an exile in this world. The one who never once compromised, not even at the point of death. And because he never did, trusting in his grace and strengthened by his spirit, we can begin to grow day by day into the faithful exiles that the Lord calls us to be. F.B. Meyer was a friend of the great evangelist D.L. Moody. He once wrote about two Germans who wanted to climb up the Matterhorn and hired two guides to do so, three guides to do so. They began their ascent at the steepest and most slippery part of the mountain. And to stop themselves from slipping, they roped themselves together. At first a guide, then a traveler, then another guide and then a traveler, and then finally the last guide. They'd only gone a little way up the mountain when the last man lost his footing on the ice. He was held up temporarily because he was roped to the other four, because each had a toehold in the niches they cut into the ice. But then the next man slipped, and the next one, and the next one, pulling down the ones in front of him. The only one to stand firm was the first because he'd driven his spike deep into the ice. But because he held his ground, all of them survived, and all of them made it to the top of the mountain. Living for King Jesus in this world can feel like walking on ice. Everything about the culture and the world around us feels like it is trying to pull us over, designed to make us slip, and fall, to not make it to the top. But because Jesus did, because he never slipped up, because he never compromised, because he drove his trust like a spike deep into the sovereign rule of God, we too can make it to the top of the mountain. Because he did. If only we will stick with him and keep trusting him, whatever the herd wants us to do. Well, why don't I pray that God would help us to keep trusting in that way? Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this passage and the way that it reminds us of your sovereign rule that you reign in defeat, you reign to defend your people. You reign to direct your purposes. Thank you that the Lord Jesus never faltered in his trust in those truths. Help us to keep following him. Whatever direction the world tries to pull us in, we pray in his name. Amen.